Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, my name is Bex and welcome to Getting Emotional. Every week I'll discover a brand new emotion, or rather, I'll tell you about an emotion you may well have felt, but had no idea there was a name for. This week, it's ruin and lust. Maybe as a kid, you were dragged across muddy fields on rainy Sundays, hiking to National Trust properties with your parents to survey crumbling castles. Or as a teenager, you went on deathly boring school trips to the remains of a local landsite. Perhaps this weekend, you took a day trip to some Roman remnants, complete with random bricks forming unknown rooms. And if you do recognise any of these jaunts, then perhaps you felt this emotion already. Maybe as you read the signs going into the buildings, checked out the plaques on the walls, or wandered through the gift shops. Because you might have been hit by ruin in lust. It's a German word, and I know a lot of people always assume this podcast will be full to the brim of them, so I'm sure they're very happy to hear a brand new German word. And it's from the 18th century. It describes an obsession with ruins and the pleasure they inspire. I'm also constantly terrified I will add an extra N in there and called it ruin and in lust, so apologies if I do. Now, when I say ruins, I'm guessing that in your head you're picturing a castle, maybe. But I think that ruins could mean anything. A decaying column? A derelict Tudor house left to rot? A modern building left behind for its lack of usefulness? Maybe a Cold War bunker? But more on that in a minute. Ruin and lust inspires a feeling of fascination in us. The joy of taking in a place that was meant to be permanent and is now abandoned. There's a grim interest, I suppose, in wondering how the building became a ruin in the first place. Rose Macaulay's 1953 book, The Pleasure of Ruins, suggested it isn't just the building itself that inspires this emotion, it's the stuff around it. The general aesthetic of the sights and sounds, like wild plants growing and owls hooting in the distance. Journalist Francis Stoner Saunders wrote in The Guardian that We do not simply stumble across ruins, we search them out in order to linger amid their tottering, mouldering forms the great broken rhythm of collapsing vaults, truncated columns, crumbling plinths, and savour the frisson of decline and fall, of wholeness de-established. That is poetry, no matter what you think, that is is beautiful. Now for a while, in England especially, having ruins in your village or your garden was seen as impressive, it showed you had a history and a prestige. In fact, some people built fake ruins on their land, follies if you will, like broken columns or fake gothic arches. Ruins have also inspired artists, some who just, I guess, like painting them, and others who use them as metaphors. So I wanted to hear from somebody with a more modern connection to this emotion, someone who certainly feels it, and for a rather interesting type of ruin. Hello, I'm Angela Barnes, a stand-up comedian and panel show botherer. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. <laughs> Now, Angela, I know you from comedy, but I also know that you have a love, a fascination of of nuclear bunkers. Is that correct? I do. Yeah. It does. Whenever someone says that to me, oh, you're obsessed with nuclear bunkers, aren't you? I think, oh, I sound like a, a mad woman. But yeah, I do. It's um, it's not quite as dark as it sounds. My obsession with it. <laughs> I, I sort of, I'm a bit of a history nerd. Like I do a history podcast and stuff. But particularly for me, 20th century sort of modern history is my my area of nerdiness and particularly the cold war so that's where it sort of all feel and it was through that nerdiness and reading about the cold war and stuff that I it was one day about oh god 10 years ago maybe more 
um, I was reading a book and I, I was just suddenly read about these um, the Royal Observer Corps, who were the the volunteer force whose job it would have been in the event of a nuclear attack to to monitor the fallout and sort of record what the dangers were and and things like that. And I and I read that there were fifteen hundred Royal Observer Corps monitoring posts, i.e., bunkers in the UK. And I was like, fifteen hundred wow. nuclear bunkers? Where are they? I've never <laughs> seen one. And I I lived in Crystal Palace at the time. And so I started Googling and it turned out there was um, there's a, an estate called the Central Hill Estate in Crystal Palace. And there's one there built into when they built a block of flats in the council estate in the 60s. They whacked a Royal Observer Corps nuclear bunker in the bottom of it. Um, yeah, so I was like, oh, God, they're, they're everywhere. We just don't know they're there. And they're fascinating little places. So what is it in particular about them, like the buildings themselves? Is it the the history they hold or is it the way they've been built and the kind of rabbit warren effect? I've never been inside one, so I don't really know. Well, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. So I I love concrete. My I'm engaged to be married and my engagement ring is made of concrete. I've got a real love wow. of concrete. And I think it's because of growing up when I did in a sort of typical market town in the 70s and 80s where everything was concrete. I, it gives me a real sense of nostalgia and, and home. It's hard to explain. I always say I'm not a communist, but I like the look. You know, I'm sort <laughs> of, that's, and, and these bunkers are, are sort of built of their concrete structures with, you know, massively thick concrete walls and big blast doors. And, and there's different types of Bunkers. So you've got your Royal Observer Corps posts, which are the little monitoring posts that would have monitored, that have little pinhole cameras at the top of them, which would have basically with photographic paper in. And when the nuclear blast went off, the, it would measure on the pinhole camera, like the brightness of the blast. So you'd be able to tell where the blast was. And then they could they had equations to work out where the, the fallout would be and things like that. So they're little tiny posts all over the countryside and they're, they're just three man posts. Um, so there's like one bed in it and and three Royal Observer Corps volunteers would be down there in the event of a nuclear attack. Um, but then you have, so for each of these posts that would have a group HQ. So um, they would be a bigger bunker. So there's one, for example, in Dundee where I'm actually having my hen do because um, I've become <laughs> friends with the guy who owns it because they, they all got decommissioned in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. These bunkers. And most of them are now privately owned. Some are opened as museums and stuff. And then you had there were 12 in this country, what they call they had various different names at different stages of the Cold War, but they were called regional seats of government. And these were massive bunkers. Um, there's one at Kelvedon Hatch in Essex, which is open to the public. I implore everyone to go or Hack Green in Cheshire if you're up north um, or Anstruther in Scotland if you're in Scotland. Go and see these places. <laughs> They're amazing because the idea was that the, the minute there was a nuclear attack during the Cold War, the government would be devolved into 12 regions. And there were people um, allocated to be the commissioner of each region. So they would be... Each region would be autonomous. There'd be no more central government. And um, the people allocated to the bunkers would go to the bunkers. And that's where they would command their region from. You know, they would manage survivors. They would manage a clear up. They would manage whatever had to happen after a nuclear attack and sort of rebuild society. So these were massive bunkers that could hold 400 people. Um, they would have uh you know big dormitories in they would have a, a little hospital area they would have um, a recreation area they were absolutely massive 
Um, so it's yeah, it's really fascinating that all this happening underground, and no one really knew about it till they were decommissioned. There was um, there, there was an organisation called Spies for Peace who in the sixties sort of found out about these secret locations because obviously these bunkers weren't for the likes of us; they were for government officials, and you know we would have been mm. shot if we tried to get in them in the event of a nuclear attack. Um, literally, <laughs> there would have been a gunman on the door to shoot anyone not authorised to go in. Um, but Spies for Peace uh, on one of the Aldermaston protest marches sort of got hold of details of where some of these top secret bunkers were and started sort of putting it in pamphlets and things and outing them and stuff. So it's really it's really fascinating. What, what I love about it is all this was going on, um, you know, all the preparations for nuclear war, but the average person didn't really didn't really know about them until it was all, all done and dusted. Is it me or is Angela really selling Cold War bunker history? Now, I should say she does have her own podcast, the wonderful We Are History pod, so go and check it out. It's been suggested that ruining lust is the appreciation of something broken, which is the Japanese feeling of wabi-sabi, and is the aftermath of the feeling mono no aware. I've actually already done a podcast on that one, uh, and it's a pretty good one too if I say so myself, so do go and check it out. Basically, there's something fascinating about standing in somewhere that was once permanent, built with purpose and plans, that now, so obviously, isn't. We always assume that constructions, especially buildings, are solid and continuous, but stepping into a ruin reminds us that's just not true. But it's a place where people once lived or worked. Maybe someone fell in love there, or had a birthday party there, or kept chickens there. I don't know, it kind of depends what type of building you're at. But the thing is, it no longer functions like that. It's just a tourist attraction, or as somewhere that you drive past on the way to get to somewhere else. It was once important, but now it's not. And isn't that everyone's secret fear? So, at a basic level, it can be explained as a love of history. At a deeper level, it's an intrigue, or maybe a sadness for something long gone. Kind of a nostalgia for a thing we've never known. And I thought Angela felt the same, so I still had a few questions for her. First of all, I wanted to delve into the emotion she feels, and specifically, how she felt after she went to her first bunker. When I, I sort of first found, read about these things, and like I said, I felt I knew there was that one in Crystal Palace. So I went, it was literally a five minute walk from where I was sitting reading the book. So I just went up there and had a look at it, and you, it was all padlocked up, you couldn't get in. And I sort of peered through and tried to look in. And uh, and I phoned Lambeth Council and just said, because at the time, it was before I started doing stand-up, I think, but I used to book comedy gigs. So I thought, oh, I could do a gig in there. That would be amazing. So I phoned the council just to find out whether, you know, it would be possible to get in. But the problem with a lot of these structures is they're riddled with asbestos. Right. So the ones that have been restored that you can go and visit, that's a problem that's been sorted in mm -hmm. those ones, you know, but... Um, yeah, yeah, you have to be really careful because they were all built using asbestos. And so um, this one in Crystal Palace, they're like, it's padlocked up and no one's ever going in there again. Basically, it's just a, <laughs> a mausoleum to time that, um, yeah, you can't get in there. I mean, I've, it's funny. I um, Oh, gosh, when was this? A couple of years ago now. And I'd gone on holiday with my with my other half, who is not into this stuff remotely. <laughs> um and so, uh, you know, my bunker stuff is usually I do on my own. And we'd gone on holiday to Scotland. We were in the Cairngorms and we'd just gone for a lovely little hike in the forest. And as we're walking along, I spotted a telltale 
the the way you can tell if you see one of these underground Royal Observer Corps posts, the little three man posts, is you see a green ventilation shaft, like a, a sort of a hatch affair, which is the access hatch to the thing. And sometimes there's sort of a what looks like plastic, but isn't, but a sort of elongated dome is the only way I can describe it, which is where the um, uh, it's called a, a, a fixed survey meter. It's what would have measured radiation. And you can sometimes see them poking up out of the grass still. And I, and we were just walking in the Cairngorms and I went, there's a, there's a bunker <laughs> over there. And my fellow was like, oh, for God's sake, we can't even go for a walk in the countryside without you just stumbling across <laughs> a bunker. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they're, they're, but they're usually heavily padlocked up and you can't get into them unless they've been sort of opened up to the public. Um, but the first one, yeah, Kelverton Hatch in Essex was the first um, one that I went to having found, you know, read loads about it. And it was incredible. Even, I mean, they've, at Kelverton Hatch, it's it's privately owned, but it's sort of opened as a museum. And they've really gone heavy on the Cold War theme. So, you know, you drive in and they're sort of, what looks like uh, nuclear rockets out the front. And it's like, all right, we get it. Yeah, like, sure. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a feeling when you walk in, because it, it, they were built to look like, well, they were built to look like farmhouses, essentially. So the land that Kelvin Hatch was built on was a, was just farmland. And um, there was a compulsory requisition order in the 50s. So the government built it, uh, bought it from the family that owned the land and build this bunker on it without really telling anyone what it is. And they built this sort of farmhouse structure, except it's reinforced concrete. Um, and it's funny because whichever that you go to these different, because they start off as RAF sort of radar bases. And then they, during the cold war became these nuclear um, bunkers, but they, all these little farmhouse structures on the top look the same wherever you go. It's really funny. You sort of see them, and you go, that's not a farmhouse. I know what that is. I know what's underneath that. Um, and so you sort of walk into this little farmhouse structure and then you have just these massive blast doors. And they're the moment, this sort of reinforced concrete and then these huge, you know, several feet thick, massive metal doors. And as you walk through those down a concrete corridor, there's that feeling of like, this is something from a film this isn't real. Like as I'm go walking underground down this concrete <clears throat> corridor and this door shuts behind you, you know, you're just like, Oh my God, this is, it's, I can't, it, it's a real, you really feel what it was. And, and that obviously it never happened, but the preparations happened all the time. There was, you know, there were people that worked down there, top secret, weren't allowed to tell their families where wow. they worked, you know, um, and stuff. And it's, it's, that sense of that history and that fear. Because I, you know, I remember the tail end of that. I remember in the 80s being at school um, when the old Protect and Survive leaflet came out, it was in 1980 and stuff. And I remember that palpable sort of fear of the bomb mm -hmm. really clearly, you know. And I can remember saying to my dad, like, you know, what if a nuclear bomb goes off? What'll happen? And he, would be, he was like, well, we'll all be dead. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Stop worrying <laughs> about dad. it. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes me feel loads better, Dad. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Um, and it's funny, you know, you talk to to people involved in these. But so uh, Gavin, my friend Gavin, who he um, is the manager of the the Royal Observer Corps headquarters in Dundee, where I'm having my hen do. Um, and I interviewed him once for a radio thing. And I just I said to him, you know, well, you've got the keys to a bunker. So, you know, if the worst does happen, is there a bed in there for me? You know, and he <laughs> said, yeah, he said, there's a bed in there for you. 
if the worst happens, he said, but to be honest, if the worst does happen, I won't be running to the bunker. He said, I'll be running towards ground zero. He said, because a nuclear attack is not something I want to survive. <laughs> and I think most people that you speak to that were around at that time and involved in these preparations and stuff all said the same thing. We're like, yeah, we knew that we were supposed to go to the bunker in the event of attack, but actually would I have left my family to die and gone down there, mm. even though that's what I'd signed up to do? Probably not. You know, it's, it's interesting. So fascinating. It's really interesting because obviously this emotion kind of comes from like, you know, original ruins years and years ago and hundreds of years ago. Mm. But but I think this is just such an important part of history. And it's a similar thing that it is just these buildings that have been left. And and it's such a shame that we don't know more about it. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah, it's well, people don't, you know, and, and it's and I'm sure there's lots of other functional buildings out there that are now ruins that that most of us don't, you know, that there are some little nerds somewhere that could tell you what they're for, but most of us don't know, you know. And Because I, I find, I, I love things like um, I this sort of ruinless thing that you're talking about. I get it from things like those gas storage towers, <laughs> yes. you know, the sort of metal structures and, I, and like brutalist architecture. I get a real feeling of something where even though it's not a ruin because people still live there, but like when I drive into London on the A14, you see Trellick Tower, you know, the big... Um, and Goldfinger building, sure, you know, yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. Because I think it's just stuff that's just immersed in nostalgia. Yeah. Even even for a time that you weren't alive for, if that makes sense. So in the way that I always I always forget that I wasn't alive when the Beatles were playing because <laughs> I hear the Beatles and I find that sort of sense of nostalgia for the sixties, and I almost forget that I wasn't there. <laughs> And I find that with buildings as well. You know, you get that sort of sense of of a nostalgia. And even from really old ruins, you know, Roman ruins and things, there's a sense of what came before and of time and the passage of time and all of that. And I think as humans that I think it profoundly affects us because it's basically a reminder that of your mortality, isn't it? It's a reminder that you're just here for a mm-hmm. passing blink of time. And this building existed and was doing what, it, you know, was had its function at a different time to you absolutely um, so it's I, yeah tied in with that I think I think it's the yeah I think you're entirely right I think and also thank you so much for going into depth on it because I think you're absolutely correct I think it's the comfort of like what's gone before you and the kind of like the continuity of it and knowing that there are bigger things than you um out there absolutely yeah totally and and yeah that that whatever your petty worries are on that day actually are so insignificant aren't they when you're stood in a ruin of a castle or you're stood in a nuclear bunker or you're you know wherever you might be you just think well this too is transient whatever it is I'm worried about today will end up a ruin in my mind or whatever you know it's it's none of it's real is it none of it's real oh I think Angela really hit upon something there an obsession with ruins on surface level is a fun hobby but scratch a little bit deeper and there's so much more to it You step into a ruin and you're reminded of the past, the present and the future in one go. And when you do, you accept that there are bigger things than you in the world. That there were people walking on the same bit of land that you did hundreds of years ago. That the world has, will and can keep on turning. And that buildings will come and go. People will come and go. But the curiosity for what came before them will always be permanent. This was getting emotional, and that was a ruin in lust. 
Big thank you to Angela Barnes for helping me out and describing her love of Cold War Bunkers. I could have spoken to her all day. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please, please uh, do let me know. Come find me on Twitter at GetEmotionalPod and I'll see you soon. Bye.